it's funny. I'll tell people like I'm a private person, and they're like, oh yeah, but says the person with an open book, you know, uh, right, right. You know, and so like it goes against my default to to be that open and be that vulnerable. And I think you know the 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 difference between you know me sitting down with you or and 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 versus putting in the book is like I can see your reaction. I know that what I'm saying is between us two. Even if you went on and said it to somebody, I know like I can control a little piece of that, right? right. Um, in the book, you know, somebody in the Philippines is reading it, and I'm like, you know, I don't know that person, and that should honestly not matter as much because that person doesn't know me either. But welcome to millennial manhood. I got, uh, got Reggie with me here. So Reggie, uh, Reggie's an interesting guy. He's a, a speaker, an author, a husband, a son, a brother, a former football player, all kinds of things. And a lot of cool stuff here in Nashville. So Reggie, uh, for folks who don't know who you are, what's your what's your 10,000 foot story? Yeah, appreciate you for having me on the pod, man. Um, it's uh, an honor, but uh, I'm a Nashville native. I'm proud to to call myself that. Um, you know, grew up on grew up on the east side of town prior to it being, you know, this cool place to be. It was it was tough. It was rough. Um, dealt with a lot of things from crime, poverty, and everything else that came with that. But, you know, education and and sticking to it really helped me see a different life for myself. And so, um, you know, went through, you know, Metro Public Schools here in Nashville to then go on to attend Montgomery Bell Academy, um, a really, you know, prestigious private school here in the city. And um, from there, I mean, education kept pushing me. But alongside that, this whole whole time I was playing sports, football, basketball, track, and uh, decided I was going to go to Vanderbilt University and stay in town. And mm. Vandy was an amazing opportunity for me. Uh, it, was, it was close to home. I could see my family when I wanted to, um, but I didn't get an offer from there. So I, after, you know, a couple months into my freshman year, decided I was going to walk on and and continue banging my head against other guys. And so that was a, it was a great choice for me. I ended up meeting some, some amazing people coached by some of the best coaches in the world and, um, you know, really balanced out my college experience, you know, being um, a student athlete was one of the greatest things I think anybody could do. It's demanding, but it's rewarding at the same time. Um, I finished school with an economics degree and didn't know what I was going to do in my life. And um, so I went back to school. I got a master's in accounting from Vandy as well, again, Nashville through and through, uh, and then started as a CPA working in an external audit, which is just as exciting as it sounds. Um, I did that for a couple of years with Deloitte here in town um, before switching over to wealth management, um, worked with this wealth management group. And absolutely fell in love with the type of work that I was doing, helping people create, craft, think about wealth. Um, it was it was very rewarding. And then in 2018, decided to go independent, started Rose Creek Wealth Management to do the exact same thing, just for a, a shift in demographics with the people that I was serving. And, you know, business took off. Things are going well. And that's when the book came. Um, mm -hmm. I. Uh, you know, with 
all the steps in life, you know, you, you tell people to do things right, do this, do this, do that. And things are supposed to work out. And I felt like I had done all those things and things were going well. If you looked at a resume, if you looked at social media or anything like that, but internally and um, from a familial, my family standpoint, it was chaos. And really, I just started journaling as a way to decompress uh, at the end of the day. And it turned into what is now my best-selling autobiography, which is crazy um, to think because I ain't been on this world that long, but um, a lot of lot of deep con- content in that book. And so uh, super proud of that. But that has led to, like you mentioned, speaking engagements and things like this, getting to meet really cool podcast hosts and um, just telling my story. So yeah, man, it's a blessing and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. So you and I got together probably a month ago, uh, when I got crepes <laughs> and, <a> bicycle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it felt like I had known you my whole life. We would just kind of hit it off and we were just talking. And, um, I found it really interesting what you said, because I've, I've, I've interviewed tons of people who've written books. I know people who have written books. Um, I've been told I'm supposed to write one. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But you are the very first person that ever told me you basically took your journaling and made it into a book, which makes total sense. I mean, obviously you got like the editing work and, and it has to be cohesive and, you know, makes sense. But at the end of the day, when you're, unless you're writing fiction, when it is some sort of autobiography or, or some sort of business book, or, I mean, it essentially is just your thoughts on paper. Yeah. Um, tell talk to me about that process of, cause obviously when you're journaling and you're using it as a way to decompress, it's very emotional and very emotionally charged in the sense that you're just doing it for yourself. What was the process like? And was there pain associated with that process of taking it from something that was for yourself to taking it to something that was for the public? Man, that's a, <clears throat> that's a great question. And, um, I'll say, let me answer the second part the end of that question. So it's on the front of my mind. There was so much, I wouldn't say pain, but fear. It was fear mm-hmm. in taking it from something that was supposed to be consumed by myself, uh, and, you know, used for, you know, therapy, uh, to then releasing that to the world. There was so much fear, fear of what it was going to cause in, you know, relationships in my life fear of how people would judge me based off of some of the stories that I told about myself, what I've done, what has been done to me and all these different things. So there was a lot of fear around that. But at the same time, I would sit down and have a conversation with people and say it, talk about it without any problems. Mm -hmm. And so, and then hearing their responses and how they were able to resonate or, or, you know, just empathize or whatever it may be that then broke down that fear so that I could take it to that next level and put it on paper and then memorialize it forever in the library of Congress, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so, but the process started with, um, I'll I'll, I'll start, like my grandmother was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and um, she had a surgery to remove one of the tumors and let me back up. She's, she's, she was the, um, rock of my life. You know, when things were crazy, when things were um, out of whack, I would go to her and it would just be nothing but love and comfort. And so I'm seeing, you know, fast forward, this person who has been all of that for me for my entire life, um, you know, 
dying of cancer. And uh, so she had um, had surgeries, had all this different treatment and everything else. And then one day, actually January 1st of 2019, um, I woke up to a call from my dad. It was like, something's not right. So we rushed her to the hospital. I thought she was dead when I first saw her. Um, but turns out she had um, tried to overdose on insulin and kill herself. And so that was like, happy new year, let's go. And a couple of days later, after just being numb from all of that and other things that were going on on the periphery, I um, I turned to my phone and my, my journal, my notes, and I just started writing it all out. Like what happened, how I felt, um, and just any anything that came up, really just stream of consciousness talking about it. And then after, I think that was on January 3rd, so two days later, and then after that, I felt a little better. Nothing had gotten better in life and anything like that, but I felt a little better. And so I was like, all right, I'm just keep doing this. And so it might have not been every day, or, but it was it was pretty consistent to, you know, sometimes it was a long ass paragraph, a long ass story, or other times it was just like, man, fuck, like period. Right. <laughs> you know, right. and um, so I did that for six months and my grandmother, she she passed away and um, at the end of that, I just like went through it, scrolled through it real fast, started reading some different things, things that I hadn't even remembered. Cause again, numb through that whole process. And I took it to my computer. I'd like copied and pasted into word. And it was like 60 pages of, of just blah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I read through it all and I cried through it all. And I think, I don't know, it, 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 Seeing how it made me feel just a little bit better, it made me feel a little lighter, took some of that weight off, I decided I was going to keep writing. And to mm -hmm. organize my thoughts, um, it was around family members. So I highlighted different pieces of my journal and colors that were related to a certain family member. So mom was in red, dad was in blue, grandma was in purple, you know, and then that was the end of it. And I wrote all the way up to the color of all the things that I can remember, all the, you know, big impactful things, the small things, all the stuff that I can remember as it related to that family member up to the color. And then each, each one of my chapters originally were mama, daddy, grandma. <laughs> like that was the name mm -hmm. of my chapters at the beginning. And like you said, getting, getting editors and everybody else involved in the process really made it a book that, um, you know, had a natural flow had some cohesion. Uh, I'll say I wrote way more words in the earlier drafts than what came out in the book. So like, you know, it, it is a process that I think a lot of people fear of writing a book, getting out there, but like, it's not going to be perfect the first time. And I think a lot of times people fear that it has to be so good that somebody's going to go help work with you. But I mean, if you got content there, if you have a story there, it can be worked with. It's interesting what you said about um, you were okay with sharing the story, but then writing it down was terrifying. The fear of that. It's its kind of like the same context of, I've talked about this a million times in the podcast, but if somebody like like if somebody was just saying some wild crap about me in the middle of the street, like I'm walking down through Midtown Nashville with my dog and somebody's just like cussing me out. I would look at them and be like, you are an insane person. Have a nice day. Right? Like, 
I wouldn't even engage with that. I'd be like, this person is obviously insane. Right. But if somebody writes it on like Twitter or like on social media and you're like, oh, I can't believe it. Like, <laughs> then it, it gets all emotional and you get all angry about it. There, there's just something about having it, um, you know, words to paper or, or uh, you know, it's almost like it's in the public square. Yeah. Um, you know, that fear it's interesting because that fear could be so debilitating, but it could it, that fear could also be what drives you further. Um, was there anything that you did to overcome that specific fear? Because I'm a big believer in people sharing their stories. Um, it took a lot because because it's funny. I'll tell people like I'm a private person. And they're like, oh yeah, the, says the person with an open book, you know, uh, right, right, you know, and. <laughs> So like it goes against my default to to be that open and be that vulnerable. And I think, you know, the 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 difference between, you know, me sitting down with you or and and, and versus putting in the book is like I can see your reaction. I know that right. what I'm saying is between us two. Even if you went on and said it to somebody, I know like I can control a little piece of that, right? right. Um in the book, you know, somebody in the Philippines is reading it and I'm like, you know, I don't know that person. And that should honestly not matter as much because that person doesn't know me either. But um, but that was that was the part. Like I just I couldn't see the responses, the reactions, um, the you know, all that stuff. So that was that was a big part of the fear. But um, like I said, talking to different people and and like connecting with people on a deeper level than I ever had in my life. That's what was like, oh, there's something to this, right? It's not just me um, venting about things that are going on in my life. It's me venting with some wisdom, with some knowledge, and then having other people bring in their story. And before you know it, you know, people I've known for 10 years, I now know way more about them in an hour long talk because of it. And so right. that started to break down that fear um, because I felt like it was more helpful than than harmful. And yes, it has my name on the book. Yes, it's my story. But honestly, I've talked to so many people where if you if you took out some of the you know very unique details, names and places, so many people could tell a similar story. You know, maybe right. not the whole thing, but pieces and parts of it. And so that that made me realize that this is this is something that could help people because a lot of what I talk about is a human experience, not a black man in America experience, not a, you know, young, poor kid, not, none of that. It's 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 a human experience that we deal with. And so that coupled with um, <laughs> really like the opposite of what it should have been. like, I had some people just piss me off that were in the book that I was trying to protect mm. before even talking about releasing it. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to do this. Like, I got a book sitting here and I'm not even going to publish it because I respect, trust, love you. And I don't want to do that. But then it's like, right? oh, so you don't even care that I'm trying to. So fuck it. Like, here it goes. Like, right. press publish. Like, there we go. <laughs> it's it's interesting what you said. So first of all, um, I didn't even know you could overdose on insulin. Shows how little I know about that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so, I have a, I have a, a family member. I never met her. Um, 
but I have a family member that committed suicide. And I've thought a lot about... You have to... So in breaking down the stigma around suicide, mental health, the language is changing. So commit makes it sound like a crime, right? Mm. When it's an yeah, illness, it's, a, it's an illness. So... Um, Suffered or... Yeah. Uh, not succumbed. To, not or... to, yeah. Yeah. Not to... Um, no, that's fair. No, that's fair because it's not like you're you're actually right. Um So, well, correction, I have I have two family members. One like very very distant, but one not so distant, but I never never met her, but I have thought about oftentimes in my life, especially as an adult, especially as I learned about this because I didn't know about this until I was probably 21, 22. Like how much pain does someone have to be in in their life for that to be and i want to make sure i'm i'm saying this clearly for that to be in in from their point of view the logical conclusion to what they should do mm-hmm. you know what i mean like all the things that have to culminate in someone's life to how much pain how much how much how much and and part of that what's made me think about this is the the individual that I'm thinking about is um the way it happened was a very gruesome way in a lot of ways um you know it it it's a multi-step process to get to a to a point of it i just i i have such i am not in that stage yeah. i am not I, I you know i am i've never even remotely contemplated it so so the thought of being there and being able to actually go through with it is so terrifying on so many levels. And what's even more terrifying is that I know I am capable of being in that same place. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And reconciling that, not just me, but all of us, you're capable, you know, reconciling that is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, man. I think it, one you know, suicide goes against our evolutionary, you know, norm, right? To to self right. to, to 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 preserve yourself for future generation and like to do that, right? It goes against all of that. And um so with a mind that isn't in that state, it is extremely difficult to understand where a person is right. when they when they make those decisions. Um I um with my with my grandmother, like a lot of things were were at play. So one, her brain had just been cut open and a tumor was removed. There were still multiple tumors pressing on her brain. Two, she was she had been over prescribed um a steroid which at a normal dosage caused psychosis. And so she was taking eight mm. times the amount she should have been taking. So that was like mind going bonkers. And right. so, you know, after she was stable and after the, the steroid wore off, she's like, I did that. I've never been suicidal in my life. <laughs> and, and I, mm. and I, and I believed her once like, you know, because she was in a whole different state of mind prior to that. And it was like, okay, I can see a little bit of my grandmother right now. Prior to it was, it was, it was scary, right? It was, you know, she was, she was angry at us for saving her. 
you know, why the hell am I here? I shouldn't be here right now. I want to be home with my mama talking about being in heaven. And so it was, um, yeah, it was, it was scary because you're like, I almost don't recognize this person with these thoughts. And sometimes, you know, I'm in the same line with you. Like I've been through some stuff, but I've never been that low to where I wanted to end my life. And, um, that is hard to, to, you know, it's, it, I, I have so much empathy for folks going through that because, you know, it, it must be so exhausting to live every day when that's, when those thoughts are going through your mind and man. So yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to reconcile. Well, and it's also, I mean, that also opens up a whole can of worms on our, I mean, the example you just gave just quite frankly, pissed me off a little bit. The, the overprescription actually pissed me off a lot of it. Yeah. Um, because we have a system that is designed to create financial incentives on the one thing where there shouldn't be financial incentives that should be, you know, and I mean, I've gone on this rant a million times and, you know, <laughs> they're good doctors. They're bad doctors. <laughs> there, are, um, there are good doctors that are overworked and understaffed. True. There are bad doctors who just don't give a crap. Um, and there are very, very perverse incentives structured throughout um, our entire medical system. So, you know, I'm, I've, I mean, I've given this example. If you want to read a book that just will get your blood pressure boiling, The Price We Pay. Mm. It's all about the medical system. And and the author was, so he's Egyptian-American. He uh, actually went and gave, so he's a physician. He actually went and gave a... Um, a speech at a medical conference. I want to say it was in Egypt, but it might've been in Lebanon or somewhere in the middle East, right, right around that area. And, uh, because the, the head, I know for a fact, the head of the conference was a, was an Egyptian physician from Egypt. And one of the, one of the areas that the the American physician was going to speak on was the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And the head of the conference, along with a couple of other board members were like, yeah, dude, that's a America problem. Mm. Like there's no point for you to talk about this here, mm. which blew his mind. So he went down this rabbit hole and in the book, I don't remember the exact details, but in the book, he broke down all these different drugs and how much is prescribed in America per patient versus how much is prescribed in like all these different countries. And the difference was like six pills versus like 60 pills. Wow. I mean, there were these massive gaps and he goes into all the details um, and, and all the different ways that, you know, American physicians are, um, they either don't know or they're incentivized or, you know, there's all these different things. So it really, you know, that sent me down a rabbit hole of, especially with some of the health issues my I've had in my family of just in a, not that I distrust doctors, but uh, I, uh, I push back a lot more. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that example you gave just got my blood boiling as you were explaining it. Man, I was, I was livid. I'm not going to lie. Like I was, I was, I was so mad. Like I was so mad because, you know, if, if she had been successful in that, it would have been, it would have been a, a, a drug induced suicide. Right. And Closed books, grandma's dead, and I would have had to live with that forever. But um, 
Yeah, it just you never you never know, right? And like you said, it could be a, a myriad of reasons. All those different things that you mentioned, right? Overworked, understaffed, um, just you know, incompetent, whatever it is. But still, like that's that's a life right there that I that I love, that a lot of people love, and I would hope that the care was was up to par, if not superb. Right, right. So you know, you go through that. So. That's the beginning of 2019. You said she passes away in what June of 2019? It was uh, July. Yep. Okay, so July of 2019. You know, you you're obviously grieving and going 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 through that process, and not just that. I mean, you're in your late 20s, going into your early 30s at that point. Um, so you're also as someone in that same stage of life, just trying to figure out life. Mm-hmm. It's not like we've got it all uh, figured out. You know, I got a three month old at the house and it blows my mind that to her, I'm an adult Um, (laughs) because I'm like, I got no idea what I'm doing, man. Um, But then, you know, then we go into the pandemic yeah, and the whole world changes and like all the the mental health and social issues and, and everything going through that. So, you know, talk me through the next couple of years of the evolution and, and what's going on in, in your life. And, yeah. you know, you come out of that, obviously, like I said, with the book and you're doing speaking engagements and all these other things, like talk yeah. me through that. So, you know, through all of that, you know, from, from that, that January all the way to maybe midway, mid to late, uh, 2020, I was still writing and, um, so a lot of other things were going on. You know, there was there was you know, perseverance through severe dysfunction is the title of the book. So there was family shit that was just hitting on every level. And, you know, there were folks trying to take advantage of my grandmother while she was dying. There were folks um, you know, resenting me for the any amount of success that I was seeing through business, through, you know, education, through whatever it may have been. Um, like, and I say folks, I mean like mom and dad, like the people who are supposed to be your biggest fans. I, I supposed to, I don't really like that word, but you know, who I would hope were my biggest fans. And um and so that was happening. Grandma was dying and then January of 2020, my grandpa died. Um, mm. who was the other half of that, you know, rock, that safe home, that everything that I needed. And um, that's when I was like, I need to stop waiting to finish this book because something's always going to be around the corner, right? <laughs> like it's, right, it's, right, this right, book's right. going to be a billion pages by the end of all this because it's always going to be something heavy. Um. But I, I sat on it for a while after he passed away. I wrote a, I wrote a chapter, what I thought was going to be the final chapter. And I closed the book and I just sat on it just to let it marinate. And um, like you said, 2020, COVID, George Floyd was murdered. More people were murdered. You know, it's a lot of social unrest. And then I was like, I have to write about this. Like, this is, you know, this affects so many of the things that I talk about, you know, with intergenerational trauma and being disproportionately targeted or affected by certain things because of my skin color. And so I went back and started to write a couple of different chapters, which really changed the whole 
Well, which added a whole nother level to the theme of the book and really brought it all together. And it was like this aha moment once I once I put a stamp on it. Um, you know, intergenerational trauma didn't come out until the very end of the book. Like, this is what we're writing about. And I was like, oh. And um, so so yeah, like I remember um crying, like seeing one crying at the video of George Floyd being murdered and then crying at just seeing how the world has rea- reacted and not not like I didn't, you know, I wanted people you know, fighting and marching and everything, but it was just like, I, watching it, it's like heartbreaking because you're like, damn, our world in 2020 is this. It's shit burning. It's people hating each other. It's people fighting. It's like, that is just terrifying. And, um, and then fast forward a couple months later, um, Rayshard Brooks was killed in Atlanta. And, and I'm thinking like, wow, you know, with everything on the forefront, every headline, every company, every organization talking about social justice, and there's another black man being murdered. And so I, um, I started scrolling through social media, like a very unhealthy habit at times. You're right, <laughs> and right, right. I found not the best for anybody's mental health. Right. And I found a picture um by a guy named Sketch Cheatham. And it was uh it was a picture of a little girl and she had her um, arms crossed and her head was down and her eyes were like 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 puppy dog eyes. And she had blood on her. And there were people around her protesting and there were people in the clouds, you know, people who had passed away. And on her shirt, it said, you killed my dad. And man, when I tell you, I just like lost it. I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. One, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with these issues with my father that I mentioned and, you know, my mother. And then thinking about, you know, I'm at that age where people are asking, are you having kids and this and this and that? And, mm-hmm. and like the whole image just like, it like broke me, man. And I, um, so I wrote, <laughs> again, I just wrote, I wrote a letter to my unborn child. And man, writing it, there were so many, I think I actually, let me think, I might've actually written that on paper. And there's so many tears just on the paper, um, reading it, writing it, it, it just hurt. But it was like, man, if that was somebody that I know, or if, if I don't get an opportunity, I have to say these things. Right. And man, it was, it was very emotional. It ended up making it in the book. And uh, like every time I read it, I still cry because those same thoughts and the fear of bringing a child into this world is is ever there, ever present. And, um, but yeah, so like that was kind of the final, like, all right, look, shit is going to keep happening. Let me, let me put a period on this thing. And, you know, there's always another book that can be written. So, yeah. It's interesting what you say there, because I can relate to it on, again, being a brand new dad, those thoughts, you know, um, so I got a little lazy with working out with my wife being pregnant and just, you know, just life happening, et cetera. And, um, I remember I held my daughter for the first time and 
in the hospital. And I remember looking at her and I swear to you, one of the first thoughts in my head was I cannot die. Mm. Mm. Like I'm not, I, I, I can't, I'm not allowed to. Damn. Like she needs me. Damn. You know what I mean? Like she, like a, a human, you know, I, I had that feeling to a degree with my wife, but at the end of the day, my wife's a grown woman. Like, you know, if something were to happen to me, yeah, you'll be fine. But like, I'm, I'm holding this little thing, this little alien <laughs> basically. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't die. Mm. I really can't die. And, uh, I was talking to my wife about this the other day. I've worked out consistently hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, like going hard in the paint, working out yeah. every single week yeah. since she's been born. I haven't missed a work that workout. It's just, it, it's just, I view it so differently because I'm like, I need to be healthy. I need to be able to take care of myself. I need to be harder to kill. Yeah. You know, cause like, I mean, also my worldview is very different. Like used, I used to think, Hey, if you break into my house, you know, I might shoot you and try to hurt you. Like you break into my house now, I'm killing you. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I might go down with you, but you ain't touching my kid. Yeah. Because that's the assumption I got to make. Right. And to add on top of that, when you think about, you know, having this human in the world, um, bringing, bringing her into the world on a much smaller scale, the amount of times I wake up in the middle of the night and I'd like walk over to her bassinet and just like make sure she's still breathing mm-hmm. is mind boggling. Yeah. Not to mention my wife does it 10 times more. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, and, and, and she can't even do anything yet. You know what I mean? Like she's not out in the world doing, you know, right. going to a friend's house or, or a party or whatever. Um, I'm over here freaking out if she's still breathing in her bassinet <laughs> five feet from my, like me. Right. So yeah, that, that, uh, I never wrote a letter to my unborn child, but that, that just kind of hit hard. Yeah, man. Yeah. It, I mean, it gives you what it sounds like, you know, sense of purpose, a whole nother sense of purpose, a whole nother drive in life. Um, but it also creates a whole bunch of this other anxiety that may have never been there. Because right. now, you know, the, the apple of your eye goes out into that world that you've experienced, right? You've experienced the world from what from an adult perspective and the eels that come along with it. Wow, this blissfully ignorant, beautiful child goes out into the world. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, look both ways, right. watch that person. Like, you know, and so it um it's tough. And but I mean, you know, there's so I, I guarantee when you look at her, it's it's so much greatness and you see the beauty. You see what the world is and can be through her. And I think that that, you know, we, we, we wouldn't see a lot of, I don't know. I think um, that gives you peace. I don't know. That's what I hope for, at least. <laughs> her Her smile, she doesn't laugh yet. She's not old enough to laugh, but she started smiling regularly. Mm-hmm. Is the most pure thing on God's man. Plan. Yeah. Yeah, man. Because it's just, she's just going off of instinct. She's just smiling because she's happy yeah, in it. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's restored a lot of my faith in humanity because you get jaded, you get, True. you know, especially in the business world, especially like dealing with all this crap, especially seeing all the horrible things happening. You're like, man, F this, like, this is, <laughs> this is awesome bullshit. <laughs> and, right. then, and then, and then something like, you know, a child comes into your life and you're like, Oh no, like, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Yep. This kid is, like you said, pure. Yeah. Um, does it ever trip you up, you know, thinking about the fact that you, you know, you've put things on paper, you've, you know, you it's in the library of Congress. Somebody could 
read your book 200 years from now, mm-hmm. after you're long gone, it might be one of your descendants. Who knows? Yeah. Because um, one of my favorite things is to look at, you know, some of my ancestors, some of their writings and be like, man, they were real human beings. Like they loved, they hated, they, yeah. you know, they were happy, they were sad. They they existed on this planet. Right. I didn't invent this. Right. Does that, you, you ever think through that? Like what that will be like when somebody's reading that someday? I just got goosebumps thinking about it. Um, yeah, man, because breaking the curse of intergenerational trauma as a black man in America is the subtitle. And mm-hmm. while I don't feel like I'm the one who just, I just broke it. Like I, you know, it, it had been bending and bending with other people before me, right? They, they did a little bit to to make sure that life was a little bit and then there were you know wrenches thrown in there and all that but like you know when it got to me and it is hard to to break curses it's hard because you you have to sacrifice so much and it comes with a lot of pain but you know i hope that you know that person however many generations down the line reads and is like damn you know probably wouldn't be here had great, 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 you know, whatever, whatever, hadn't done all these different things. And that is something that gives me a lot of hope. You know, I think that um, my whole drive for so long has been, you know, I didn't want those that came after me to have experienced the same things that I did in a negative way. Like the all the negatives that I saw and had to experience, I didn't want that. Like it's, and, and it's crazy, you know, like listening to rap music or just the culture. It's like, that's real. That's hard. That's this. That's, you know, fuck that. Like, I don't want to have to right. deal with that. Like, right. <laughs> and right. so, you know, that's, that's been a, a push. It's just, you know, if I were to have kids and then grandkids and, and on and on, um, I don't want them to ever have to n- know what it feels like to not have something to eat or to not know where they're going to be sleeping or to, you know, have to fear that somebody's breaking in the house and got a gun. And, you know, I don't want, I don't want them to have right. to deal with that. And so that's been a, a push. And I think, you know, when I think about that, whoever, young person, older person, later on, uh, reading the book that they understand, you know, one, like to what you said, like, this was a real person. Right. This is not just a, um, you know, myth- mythological person, creature, whatever, from back in the day. This was like a real person with emotions and feelings and did good things, did bad things, had successes, had failures. That's that's what I want everybody now to, to realize. Like, you know, right. we're, we're, we're all human and we all, you know, do human things. <laughs> so what have you learned about communication going through all this? Like whether it's communicating via the written word or the spoken word? What have you, because your, your communication style and how you interact with people has had to have involved, evolved going through all this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I contribute a lot or I attribute a lot of the way that I communicate now to my wife. Like prior to meeting her, I wasn't, you wouldn't have gotten anything out of me. Like you would have had a two minute podcast and then I would have been sitting here silent, staring at you like, <laughs> what's up? And those are the worst. <laughs> those are so bad. 
And so there's, like, there's quite a few of those where I was like, I'm scrapping this. Yeah, this ain't, this ain't never seen the light of day. This is horrible. I believe it. And so like that was very much me. It was all surface level. And then meeting my wife, um, she would challenge me on that because you know I would I was still holding on to this insecurity, these these negative aspects of my personality and character that she just was like, why? And talk to me, mm. help me understand. Like I, and that hurt, right? Again, breaking curses right. and doing something different hurts, but then it starts to feel good. And so, but back to your question, um, when I talk to people, when I hear stories, I'm always now thinking about what did that little kid experience? Right. If someone comes to me with problems or comes to me with a viewpoint on life, whatever it may be, in the back of my head, I'm like, what did that kid experience? Right. What did mm-hmm. what did you experience as a six, seven, eight year old even before that? Right. Because I think so much of that shapes who we are, who we become, how we see the world. Um, and that if you put things in that perspective, man, like back to your point about looking at your daughter, like you can't be angry all the time at other people, even if they have a different opinion than you, right? Because I'm looking at a six-year-old when I'm when you're talking and I'm saying, right. damn, right? Somebody shaped and formed the way that that six-year-old thought. And and then you 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 get to build this level of empathy and compassion for other people. So that's where I'm at. I'm always like, okay, I hear that. What was childhood like? What was childhood like? And I mean, it is... And and it's funny. So like I, I teach yoga, right? And sometimes I'll 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 bring in different themes and things like that. But man, when I when I tell somebody to look in the mirror and see their seven year old self or hug their seven year old self, that's when you start hearing. <laughs> you yeah, know, people yeah. people start crying, man, because it's so much of that. Like it's so much of the childhood experience that continues with us, that sticks with us. And because of how we're wired, like this negativity bias, like we're not going to remember that fun ass birthday party that we had when we were seven. We're going to remember that time that that bully did whatever that bully did. And, um, you know, bringing that out, helping people see that, discover that, um, or just recognizing it is, is something is a huge step in, I think the healing process for so many people. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. That seven-year-old and and that negativity bias. Yeah, man. Um, well, and just, I mean, just the ability to communicate. I mean, I told you this part of the reason that I started the podcast is I wanted the people to stop to reinvent the, stop reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. Like ain't nothing new you're going through. Right. Somebody's gone through it. Right. There's been a hundred billion people that have lived since the dawn of man. Right. That's a lot of people. Um, you know, and that's a lot of struggle and a lot of success and, yada 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 and like i said like the social media thing doesn't help and everybody's constantly you know comparing themselves to somebody else's highlight mm-hmm. reel. It, it was interesting last friday i actually um i volunteered for a junior achievement event and um it was working with eighth graders mm-hmm. and it was so interesting to observe these eighth graders because i haven't really spent a lot of time with middle school kids since I guess I was in middle school and um, just seeing the differences in how some of them communicate, bro, that was fascinating. Yeah. Cause some of them might as well be like grown adults. Wow. In their communication style. Wow. And other ones, like, I mean, I had to beg for like 
a word <laughs> out of them. And I'm teaching them about finance. You yeah. Know, we're, we're learning about how to run a budget and, you know, get a mortgage and all the, on and all this stuff. And, um, but one of the other things that was really interesting is I talked to them about COVID mm-hmm. and it, I was blown away at how self-aware these 13 year olds were. Um, dude, this thing we went through over the last two years is really going to screw up a lot of people for yeah, a long man. time. And what's terrifying is it's going to screw up. Like this is going to sound bad, but if you're 60 and you're screwed up from it, I'm sorry. It sucks. But like that ain't going to like, it's not going to, you know, destroy our world. You know what I mean? Like in the sense of like, you got like maybe 30 years. <laughs> okay. And and it's in retirement. You ain't being productive. Yeah. <laughs> not trying it's, to insult. It's, some, it's, some, it's some folks of a distinguished age that are mad at you right now. <laughs> So mad, so mad. But, you know, 13-year-olds, we need them to be functioning members of our society for the next 50, 60 years. It's a little bit more important for them not to be screwed up from COVID, right? Um, So, yeah, speaking on communication and speaking on how the trauma and the – like, I wonder what generational curses are going to come out of the Mm. fact that when you were 11, you were locked up in a house for two years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like, I I fear that so much. You know, you got – you got second and third graders who don't even know what regular school is like. You got, right. you know, all these all these kids having to experience prom graduation like on Zoom and stuff. And and it it's right. terrifying because, you know, back to what we've been mentioning, like social media, you know, when you're in home, all you got is your phone, your computer, and things like that. And so you're turning to these outlets and those are having such a huge negative impact on the way that brains are developing on the way that kids are viewing themselves and things like that. And so, uh, and, and not to mention just the constant anxiety and stress that everybody lives in. When I go to the school store, do I need a mask? Do I don't, do they cough? Oh God, what it like at all times. Right. And, um, and then you throw on, well, now there's a war. <laughs> now there is, you know, that it's just so much stuff hitting, uh, these kids at every single moment and uh, I mean, hitting everybody, but, you know, 24 cycle, 24 seven news cycle is always putting up the, the, the worst, the worst since yeah. this day, the best, you know, and it, and it's giving people these emotional um, reactions and responses all the time. And it's not healthy right. for us to experience all that. And um, again, like a kid is developing, a kid is, trying to figure out the world and all of this junk is being thrown into the mix. And so, yeah, man, it's, I mean, I don't think it's irreversible, but it is a challenge that a lot of people are going to have to deal with. Well, and I think it's, um, I think the hard part about it is that we're not like the adults aren't equipped to deal with it because it's not it's not like we go through this every 10 years and like we've (laughs) got a track record. All right. Here's how you figure it out. Um, I mean, the scariest part is like, all right, I'm, I'm really going to get in trouble for saying this. We've basically created like a generation of like homeschool kids and like, <laughs> like, look, there's some, it doesn't mean that you're uh, that you're weird if you're homeschooled, but like <laughs> most kids that were homeschooled ended up being weird. What like, let's, do you let's mean just, by that? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. No, that's a good just one. the social development. No, I feel you. Like there is, there is something about being twelve, yeah, 
and being told to do something by a teacher that's not your mom. Right now, again, some people really pull it off well, like the homeschooling part. Yeah, I would argue that's the minority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and more because than that, there is, too, you got the interaction with your peers, right? Right, and and seeing that, and and, and the social cues that you get from nonverbal, right? Seventy percent of what our, our communication is nonverbal, and if you sitting there and your computer screen is turned off and like you don't get all that you don't experience that and that's a part of developing and, and, and evolving as a person so yeah i feel you well and it's it, it's the whole concept of like if i say something mean online yeah like if i say something mean to you um if we're in sixth grade together and i say something mean to you and then i see your response and i see that it hurts you yeah i get the feedback of like okay that was really shitty i shouldn't do that yeah right it makes me a better human, or at least as opposed to unless I'm a psychopath, which those exist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do it online, that, that doesn't exist. Right. Right. So so you're you're not developing. And maybe, I don't know, maybe other people just don't value the social component of development as much as I do. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly important to mm-hmm. be a functioning social human. Yeah. Um, other people might disagree, but I just, <laughs> yeah, I'm just scared that we... I'm just scared that we created a generation of kids who won't even be able to talk to other kids, but you much got, less adults. You got to see the the light in it because because hopefully, and what it feels like is that we're moving out of this phase, and so it's not a generation; it's it's a couple years, and then we recover, right? We recover, yeah. and so that's what I'm hoping for, right? That this doesn't continue for ten years of schooling. That you know, we get to a place where it's like, okay. You remember that thing back in 2020? Yeah, that was crazy. We were at home doing school. And now, like, that's a thing of the past. Watching Tiger King. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All the the things. All the things. Oh, man. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it just just got me thinking, talking to these kids, because we spent a decent amount of time, like, in between. Like, they give you these modules, and you work through the module, and then you got time left over. We just had a a bunch of time left over. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, either I'm a great teacher or a terrible one. I don't know which one I fall into with that. But just Are you saying you shouldn't them, be a homeschool teacher? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hell no. Um, my wife was a kindergarten teacher and I went and visited her class several times when she was still teaching. And I was like, yeah, nah, I'm good. Um, give me some adults. But yeah, just, I, I don't know. It just really got me, really, really got me thinking, talking to them about that and being like, damn, these kids like are not stupid. They know right. this was off. Yeah. Um, and again, just kind of tying it into all the things we've talked about, like what new generational curse that we create in those two years? Yeah, man. Yeah, for real. Because one thing is like, you know, so for some people, like for me growing up, school was uh, a safe haven, right? right? Those eight hours or however long we spent in school was a was a moment of peace for me. And when you take that out of somebody's life and now they're constantly in turmoil, uh, that that especially at a younger age that can have a lasting super long effect on a person's development so yeah man it's it's a lot i it's funny so like you uh i think kids have so much more self-awareness than we like to give them credit for um because you know to your point some of those folks you were talking to like man, you could you could be this could be an adult conversation right here, and right. so when I go talk and I talk to some school sometimes, I'll start with you know my story, 
and in a way of, you know, I used to be in your seat, but then like, this is where I am. And these are the things that are important to me. And I, and I'm very vulnerable. I'll tell them they can ask me anything. They can, you know, you know, anything. And I'm super vulnerable with them. And then afterwards, when I give them an opportunity to speak, to ask questions, to do whatever, I've heard, you know, so much stuff from these kids and the things that they're dealing with. And they're willing to say this in front of their classmates without fearing judgment or anything like that because they're like reggie just did all this and we respect the hell out of him and like like and so um it's amazing what you can do when you build that environment that is safe for people to talk about things like that or just talk period and let you know what's on their mind and it's okay if you stutter it's okay if you're not good at public speaking it's okay like we're gonna sit here and we're gonna be patient and we're gonna wait because you have a thought and it's gonna come out eventually and man, it, I've, I've heard some amazing things. I've heard some heartbreaking things, but kids have a lot of self-awareness. They have a lot of emotional intelligence. And I think it's, you know, a, a result of everything that they're being exposed to bombarded. Well, with. and I think it's, I think it's so important that you're doing that because when you make, not when you make, when they choose to share and be vulnerable, it humanizes them to each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And and when it humanizes them to each other, they all develop and grow. Yeah. And mature. And it, you know, it's, I always used to give the example, even as a high schooler, you know, post 9-11, like a lot of the, a lot of the hatred of Muslims in particular mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, I remember I used to hear people talk about folks like, they weren't human just mm-hmm. because that was the rah rah bullshit propaganda at mm-hmm. the time. And I remember even in high school being like, yo, dude, it's really easy to hate a Muslim if you don't have a friend named Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a lot harder once you have once you have a Qasim or a Ahmed as your buddy. Yeah. Because then it's not Muslims, it's right. your friend. Yeah. And, th- and that's just an example I use because the ethos of the country was just so aggressive at that point. Right. Um you know, so it's, it's, it, it's, it's the, the hysteria of things, but once you personify something and you, you make it human, it, it's, it's hard to be part of the group thing, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which I, which I think the, the quicker a human can develop their own independent thought process instead of a group think, the more mature and more functioning they are for a society. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, back to what you're saying about Muslims and it's a fear of the unknown. Like we possess that. And again, if you mm-hmm. don't have a friend, if you don't know anybody, then you're going to have this fear that may not look like fear. It's going to look like anger, hatred, aggression, whatever else. It's rooted in fear. And right. when you are able to break that down by getting to meet somebody, understand somebody and and realize that you're just a human, just like me, right? You're dealing with some of those same issues that I'm dealing with going through a lot of life the same way, then you break down the fear and, and get to loving people for who they are. And I think, you know, that is, that is great, right? That we do that once we know somebody, but in order for, you know, true inclusion in this world, true love, like it, it, it can't be a result of, yes, I have a person, a friend or somebody I love who identifies as that, right? Because sometimes you're going to go through an entire life and not have a person in your life that identifies as that. And it's like, we still have to love people for people uh, without the relationship, 
without knowing somebody like that. And so um, I challenge people all the time. It's like, man, damn, that's somebody's daughter. Well, no, that's somebody. It's not just somebody's daughter. It's not just um, a friend. It's somebody. Like they're a human in in themselves. Right. And so why can't we just recognize that so that we can make the world a better place? Well, coming up on time, that is actually one of the best places to end the podcast. (laughs) Um, I've got, you know, so I've got my question I always ask at the end of the podcast. You know, you go back to 18-year-old Reggie, knowing all that you know about yourself and knowing all that you know about the world today. You go back to wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, 18-year-old you. What's one piece of advice you give yourself? Piece of advice I'd give 18-year-old me would be embrace forgiveness, learn to forgive sooner, truly forgive, um, because holding on to those grudges, holding on to that only creates pain inside. That's what I would say. Hmm. Embrace forgiveness. Yes, I've got the title for the episode. <laughs> I don't think anybody's said that. I mean, it's been, I've got done like 150 of these and wow. I don't think anybody's ever said embrace forgiveness. I might be wrong, but yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, Reggie, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate, I pre- you. I appreciate you, bro. This was fun. <laughs> um, how can folks get a hold of you? Where can they buy the book? Yes, sir. You know, what's the, what's the Reggie one oh one on that front? Yeah. So my name is Reggie D Ford. If you search me on Instagram, it's Reggie D Ford. Actually, Reggie D. Ford across all platforms. Um, and then you can buy the book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, wherever you buy your books. Um, check it out. You go into a bookstore and they don't have it, request it, and they can send, they'll can they bring it to you. Uh, Perseverance Through Severe Dysfunction, Breaking the Curse of Intergenerational Trauma as a Black Man in America by Reggie D. Ford. Has the audio book come out yet? It has. It just dropped, it I think, two weeks ago. I'll be reading it so you can hear from me. You can hear me struggle over words and you can hear me cry a little bit, um, but you can hear me laugh as well. Uh, it's, it's a mm. good one and uh, available on Audible, um, all the all the platforms as well. I was about to say, you know, you got that Audible credit out there. Go ahead and, yeah. go ahead and use one. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Check out ReggieD4.com. It'll give you a lot of information. Perfect, perfect. Um, I'll have all that in the show description so folks can click on it. Um, outside of that, info at manhoodpod.com. If you got questions, you want to get interviewed, have me someone interview. If you have constructive criticism, keyword is constructive. Don't just complain. <laughs> you got to offer a solution or I'm going to ignore you. Um, and outside of that, Reggie, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too, man. Appreciate it for having me on.